Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, who did say to thine apostles, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Regard not our sins, but the faith of thy church. And grant it that peace and unity which is agreeable to thy will, who livest and reignest with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Well, welcome. We are engaged in an ongoing study of the Gospel of John, and we have come really to the heart of this first chapter. So if you have your Bibles, and I encourage you to bring your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 1. And we're going to go ahead and read verses 9 through 14. So John chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is one of the most important sections, not only, I think, of this first chapter of the Gospel of John, but in many respects, it's one of the most important texts in the New Testament. Not only verse 14, but the verses that precede it. Because it deals with this whole subject of becoming children of God. It's a very important corrective because we are living in an age in which there is a great deal of misunderstanding when it comes to being a child of God. The popular notion that's out there in the world today is that we are all, by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, children of God. You hear it all the time, don't you? You hear about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. What could be more basic, what could be more encouraging than that? How many of you have ever heard that, that we're all God's children? As I said, it's a very popular notion today. The problem is that it is not a particularly biblical notion. The Bible does not teach that we are all children of God. In fact, it teaches something quite to the contrary. We are not all children of God. We are actually children of wrath. That's what the Bible teaches. If you keep your finger there in John, flip over, if you will, to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians for just a moment. As many of you know, Ephesians is my favorite letter in the New Testament. If for no other reason than it is so short, and yet it is packed full with practically every Christian doctrine imaginable. Everything that Paul fleshes out, for example, in his great epistle to the Romans is actually here in Ephesians in a shorthand version. And this is what Paul says writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2. He says, But as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind so that we were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath, what? Like the rest of mankind. That's what Paul says. He said, do you want to know what you were? I don't know how many of you remember there was a movie that came out some years ago starring Barbara Streisand, and it was called The Way We Were. How many of you remember that? The Way We Were. Paul said, this is the way you were. Now, of course, he's writing to a Christian community, and he's saying that's the way you were. That's not what you are now, but that's the way you were. That is what you are by nature. You are children of wrath. You are under the judgment of God. Now, sometimes we look at this and we say, well, yes, I know. Paul had a tendency to sort of overstate things. You know, Paul was prone to hyperbole. But Jesus didn't believe that, surely. Jesus, who was the lover of our souls, as the hymn says, would never have said that we were children of wrath. Well, take a look at John chapter 8 for just a minute. Some of you perhaps have read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. This is not how you do it. John chapter 8. Jesus is engaged in a conversation with the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. In verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. In other words, we really don't need this message that you're bringing, Jesus, because we are special. We have a privileged status. We are the Jews. Abraham is our father. And mind you, Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, were highly regarded. They've gotten somewhat of a bad rap these days, but in their own day, they were highly regarded. But look at what Jesus says. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. You're following your father, but your father's not Abraham. Raises the question, well, who is their father? Well, they replied, we were not born of sexual immorality. That was a slight against Jesus because of his birth. There were rumors spreading around that there were some odd circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. And one of those rumors was that Jesus was the product of an impure relationship. That his mother had been a woman of the street or whatever it may have been. But this is sort of a slight against Jesus. And then they followed up with these words, which were really extraordinary. They said, we have one father, even God. Now, no Jew in the first century would have actually said that. The Jews would have referred to God as the father of the nation, but no Jew. This was an extraordinary claim would have ever said that God is my father. And look at what Jesus says to them in verse 42. He says to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Now, how well do you think that went over? <laughs> Can you imagine if the rector of St. Philip's was to climb up here and said, you people, you are all children of the devil. <laughs> it would probably be a somewhat short-lived tenure, wouldn't it? It's okay if Jesus says it or Paul says it, but the rector better not say it. But that is the testimony of the New Testament. 
So one of the significant things about this verse that we're taking a look at this morning in John chapter 1 is that it disabuses us of this common idea that we are all, simply by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, all children of God. Now certainly the Bible does say that we are all creatures of God. We are made in the image of God. We are a reflection of His glory. We stand apart from the animal world for this very reason. There is a dignity and an honor that is bestowed upon human beings. But being a creature of God is not the same thing as being a child of God. What did John say? He said, that true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And he came to his own, to his own people who should have recognized him, who should have acknowledged him, who should have been anticipating his arrival. And his own people, what? Received him not. They rejected him. And we know that was true. Now, it wasn't just the Jews who rejected Jesus. But certainly, they of all people should have anticipated his coming. But when the Messiah finally arrived, the Son of God, that one by whom all things were made, John says, who held the whole universe, the cosmos together, where was he born? In abject poverty, in a backwater of the Roman Empire, forsaken by all. The first to come and give him homage were shepherds, common folk. And the next group to come and give him homage were Gentiles, foreigners, pagans who came from the east. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. They rejected him. But then he goes on to say, but to those who did, while the vast bulk of humanity did reject him, to those who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. How does that happen? How is it that we go from being a creature of God, every single one of us, endowed with dignity to be sure, but not actually in communion with God? Well, that's what John goes on to explain. He does it quite briefly, quite simply, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God. How does a person become a child of God? Well, John tells us, first of all, how it does not happen. He says it does not happen by blood. That's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders were saying to Jesus and John. Abraham is our father. How was it that Abraham was their father? Because they were born into it. And there are many people who assume that simply because their father or their mother were Christians, that that automatically makes them Christians. Well, let me tell you something. You can get into the White House on somebody else's coattail, but you don't get into the kingdom of God riding on somebody else's coattails. But that's the assumption. Well, automatically I am because my family has been faithful. Maybe there was even a clergyman in the family which incidentally may be more of a liability than an asset, if the truth be known, I'll be honest with you. 
But John makes it very clear, if you're going to become a child of God, it is not by blood. It is not something that is passed on to you automatically in the bloodstream. And it doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter if they came over on the Mayflower or whatever it is. It doesn't matter if you're descended immediately from George Whitfield. It makes no difference whatsoever. A person does not become a child of God by virtue of their blood. Here's the second thing he says. It is not by the will of the flesh. Now, in order to understand what he means by that phrase, not by the will of the flesh, you have to understand what the flesh meant. The Greek word was sarx. It meant your natural appetites. In other words, it's not by human effort. It's not the result of just having some sort of religious experience. You know, you've met those people who have gone out and they've climbed the Himalayas or they've, they've gone out and they're on a boat and they have some sort of just sort of spiritual experience. Have you ever met somebody with a spiritual experience? And they, they just automatically assume as a consequence of, of, of feeling that way that they are automatically a child of God. As a consequence of their natural appetites or their natural emotions. Well, C.S. Lewis talked a great deal about our emotions, and he says our emotions are fickle things. You, you know how it is. If you've just won the lottery, and, 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 and you're sitting on the top of the world, and you come to church on Easter morning, and, and the choir is in tune, and the minister is on. He's brief, and, 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 and he's pithy. And, and uh, all of that, and, and you know, just everybody, everybody's in a good mood. And man, it's not hard to believe that Jesus is risen. It's not hard to believe that the man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week. But when the doctor has just given you the long face, when the stock market is down, when your children are all far off and some of them are living apart from God and you come into church and it sounds as though the organist is playing the organ with boxing gloves and the minister is just droning on and on and on. You know Jesus rose again, but you're not sure you're going to. All of that. Sometimes your emotions would cause you to believe maybe this is just all a bunch of baloney. So our emotions can be very fickle things. They can play tricks on us. We should not assume simply because we've had an experience that we're children of God. That's what John is talking about here. So he says, it's not by blood, it's not by the will of the flesh, nor, as he said, by the will of man. That is to say, it is not the result of human effort. You cannot earn your way into God's favor. No matter how hard you try. We think we can do it as the old... um, investment commercial used to say the old-fashioned way. We can earn it. We can somehow earn God's favor. The problem with trying to earn God's favor is what Paul says there at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. When he says we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Paul doesn't say we are sick. I know the hymns sometimes speak of being sin-sick and sorrow-worn, but that's not Really, what Paul says, he says, we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And the question is, how much good can a dead person do? 
The reason we're saved by grace through faith is because we're dead and God has to make us alive even when we were dead. He has to do for us spiritually what he did physically for Lazarus. He has to make us alive. A spiritual resurrection has to occur. So John says we are all creatures of God. None of us is by nature children of God. We are in fact under the judgment of God. Because all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. So the question is, how does one become a child of God? Well, he says it's not by blood, it's not by the will of the flesh, it's not by the will of man. It's by adoption. It's by adoption. We become children of God when God adopts us into His family, we experience a new birth. If you think about it, that's what adoption is for a child that is adopted into a family. It's a, it's a new birth. It's a new life. And it happens, he says, for those who receive and believe. Now, when we talk about believe, we're not simply talking about believing that Jesus is the Son of God. We're talking about trusting in Him. That's what the word for faith really is in the New Testament. The Greek word is pistis. It means to rely on, to place your confidence in. Skip ahead to John chapter 3 for just a moment. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We'll probably get there in about six months to John chapter 3, but let me just skip ahead. This is a familiar story. You all know it. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I know that that is language that makes Episcopalians and Anglicans a little uncomfortable. We think about born-again Christians. But you need to understand that according to Jesus, there's no other variety. There's no other variety of Christian save the born-again type. That's what he's saying here. He said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, nor where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Part of the reason why Nicodemus was confused is that when Jesus said, you must be born again, the Greek actually, if it's rendered literally, is you must be born again like the first time. And that's why Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? When he thought of being born the first time, he was thinking of what? When he came out of his mother's womb. But that's not what Jesus was talking about at all. Jesus was not talking about Nicodemus' birth. He was talking about the birth of man. 
And you'll recall that when God created man back there in Genesis, out of the dust of the earth, Adam was there, sort of picture a sawed statue, perfectly formed, anatomically correct in every respect, the perfect human specimen, but the book of Genesis says he was not alive. Until what? Until God breathed into him the breath of life. Now, the word that is translated as breathe is the word ruach, in Hebrew, it is a word that means breath, wind, or spirit. So when Jesus talks here about being born of the Spirit, that's what he's talking about. What happened to Adam has to happen to us. We're dead. We only become alive if God does what? Breathes into us his holy and life-giving Spirit. Jesus goes on to say, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it goes. And you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you earthly, heavenly things? No one is ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and this is the critical verse, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him must have eternal life. That's it. That's what John is talking about. When he says, but to all who did believe, who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's the necessity of the new birth. It's all about being adopted into God's family. Every human being you meet is a creature of God. But you only become a child of God when you believe and receive. It's interesting, when you look at John chapter 3, Jesus alludes to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. It's from a strange story in the book of Numbers. You may be familiar with it. We're told that when the children of Israel were wandering out there in the wilderness, they uh, began to complain. Now, I'll be honest with you, until I actually went to the Sinai Peninsula, I never understood why they complained. But I've been to that part of the world. And it is a desolate, barren place. I guarantee every single one of us would have been complaining. But God got tired of it because, of course, He had led them by signs and wonders and the power of His outstretched arm out of their captivity. He was leading them to a promised land. The delay was in large measure because of their sin. And so they are complaining. And so as an act of discipline, God sent... And this, of course, you know I have a phobia about snakes, so this is the worst nightmare for me. A brood of fiery serpents into their camp to bite the people. And we're told that when they were bitten, they became sick and they began to die. And Moses went and pleaded to God on their behalf. He said, look, you've let these people out of their captivity. You don't want them to perish out here in the wilderness. Lord, you've got to do something. Provide an antidote. And the people have been trying everything. 
they've been applying a poultice, and they've been trying to draw out the poison, but nothing that they did worked. They were under judgment. They were children of wrath. But God provided a solution. He said, all right, Moses, this is what you've got to do. I want you to make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole and erect it in the middle of the camp. And what else, Lord? Nothing else. Just tell the people to come, and if they gaze upon that serpent, they will be healed. Well, there's got to be more to it than that, right? No. God has supplied a means by which you may be saved. Trust in God's antidote. And what John is saying is just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of God has been lifted up upon a cross to suffer the curse of the damned for you and for me, to drink to the bitter dregs the judgment of God on your behalf and mine, that if we merely look to Him Stop trusting in ourselves. Stop trusting in our own blood, our own heritage, our own feeble efforts. And we look to Him who was lifted up upon the tree and we believe in His sacrifice on our behalf. We shall be saved. We shall experience a new birth. And we shall be adopted into God's family as His beloved children. Our status will change from being mere creatures to beloved children. Now, that's not to say that God does not have love for His creatures. But as we're going to see, there is a difference in terms of relationship between a creature and a child. So, we become children of God by believing and receiving. That is adoption. But as with any adoption, it's the parent who initiates the process, isn't it? We shouldn't fall into the trap of believing that somehow we do it all. That that we're somehow better than those who have not believed because we've been enlightened, we've received Christ and others have not, as though the work is all ours. Any child who's been adopted into a family does not initiate the process. Child doesn't say, I'd like to be a part of that family. I know these people over here want to adopt me, but I'm really not interested in them. These folks over here now, on the other hand, they have a much nicer house, much nicer neighborhood. I would much prefer to be adopted into their family. None of us does that. None of us chooses our family. God initiates the process. He works in our hearts. This is what we call provenient grace. He works within our hearts, within our lives to bring us to the point where we believe. C.S. Lewis described this very well in his own conversion. He talks about the time when he was converted. He said he was riding up a hill on the top of a bus. And he said, it was presented to me that I had this opportunity. He said, I felt like a man who was in a corset. Uh, I felt like a man in a suit of armor or a lobster within his shell. And I felt as though I could unlock the armor, unbuckle the shell, or I could keep it on. 
He said, I chose to unbuckle. In other words, I chose to believe. And yet, reflecting back on it, he said, I realized that God had been so orchestrating the process that I'm not sure I could have done anything else. If you are a child of God today, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Him, if you look back over the course of your life, you will see, I guarantee it, God's guiding hand all the way. Bringing the various circumstances together, bringing the various people into your life to bring you to the point where, yes, it appears as though you chose Him, but you suddenly realize that all along He had chosen you. And that is why it is by grace, my friends, it is by grace and not by human effort, not by the will of the flesh. It is a gift, a gracious gift of God. And here's the extraordinary thing. When you are adopted into God's family, you can never be disinherited. That was one of the curious things about adoption in the ancient world. You could be adopted in the ancient world, but according to Roman law, while you could disinherit your own children, think about that. There are times, let's be honest. (laughs) While you could disinherit your natural children, you could not disinherit your adopted children by Roman law. Why? Because you had made the conscious decision to bring them into your family And once you had done that, it was irrevocable. When you become a child of God, there is nothing, there's nothing in heaven or on earth, there's nothing that anyone else can do. Moreover, there's nothing that you can do. That's what Paul talks about in Romans when he said, Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come. Nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by the way, it's very important, that phrase, nothing in all of creation, because that means you. You were a creature before you were a child. You are part of the creation. And nothing, once you become a child of God, nothing, nothing that even you do, can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, who trusted in the antidote that God had provided, he gave the right to become children of God, to become what they were not by nature. And now nothing, nothing can separate them from the love of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? We talk about that a lot, but what exactly does it mean? At the very least, it means two things. First of all, it means that you do have a special privileged status. That's just a fact. You have a special privileged status. Perhaps you've been watching the news And you've heard a little bit about Prince Andrew, Queen Elizabeth's second son. Randy Andy, as they sometimes call him. 
And you all know the story about Andrew. You know that he's been involved in all kinds of CD activity and so forth. And um, he has settled his case out of court. I think most of you probably know that. Um, probably an enormous sum of money. Well, the press began to ask the question, where did that money come from? I mean, he, of course, is a member of the royal family, but he doesn't have a whole lot of money himself. He gets a, a naval um, retirement pay. But, but the question was, did his mother pay this? And some people thought, well, that was not right. Well, she probably did pay it. They were concerned it came out of the privy purse, that it came out of public funds. Apparently, it did not come out of public funds, but it came out of somewhere, and his mother paid it. Now, that doesn't mean that his mother necessarily, what, approved of his behavior or was happy. She stripped him of a lot of his honors. But what? He is still a son. And as a mother, she's not going to forsake her son in a time of crisis. You realize if you're a child of God, God is not going to forsake you in a time of crisis, even if he doesn't approve of your behavior. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He is going to be with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that he may not let a little bit of suffering and pain come into your life as a form of discipline. God disciplines those he loves, but what it does mean is that you will never cease to be his child. You'll never lose your salvation. Because your salvation is not your work. It is the gift of God. So you have a special privileged status. Here's the other thing you have. Special access. You have access to God. You have access to the Father. When I was the rector of St. David's Church in Gerald, many years ago now, we had a preschool. And my eldest son was just about two years old at the time, and uh, he was in the preschool, about 110 students, and when I walked through, the teachers had taught all the children to call me Father Jeff. That's what the children were supposed to call me, Father Jeff, Father Jeff, Father Jeff. I'd go through, and they'd say, Father Jeff, and I'd say, hello, 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 how are you? And then there was one little boy that yelled out, hey, Daddy! And one of the other little children said to him, that's Father Jeff. He said, you have to call him Father Jeff, but I call him Daddy. Now, he could do that. Why? Because he had a special relationship. I was his daddy. Did you ever notice that when in the Eucharist we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, and now as our Savior Christ hath taught us, we are bold to say? Let me think about that. You're coming into the throne room. You're coming into the presence of God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth by whom all things were made. You might think that we ought to come humbly. But the liturgy says we come boldly. And why can we come boldly? Because he's our daddy. We are his children. We have a special status. So to those who believed, 
and who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Here's my question for you this morning. Are you a child of God? I'm not asking the question, are you a creature of God? I'm not asking, do you have inherent dignity? Of course you do. I'm asking the question, have you ever personally trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner under the wrath of God, the judgment of God, dead in your trespasses and in your sins. But you've heard God calling. And if He's calling, that means He's made you alive even when you were dead. And have you realized that you have nothing to bring to the table? Absolutely nothing. God is not interested in your family background. Now, that's a hard thing for South Carolinians to hear. (laughs) What he wants to know is, have you trusted in the antidote that he has provided? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has been lifted up on a tree, that all who look to him and stop trusting in themselves, might not perish but have everlasting life, find themselves adopted into the family of God, into a relationship that is irrevocable. It continues on for eternity until God calls you home with the rest of your family. And the true light came into the world. And his own people received him not. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Wretched sinners that we are. We thank you that you adopt us into your family, that you take the initiative, you make us alive even when we were dead, and bring us to that point where we believe and receive. If there be any here today who have never made that conscious decision, who have never come before you and prayed that prayer, acknowledging their sin and begging for your mercy, I pray that it might be today. They might have come in here today as a creature, Grant that they might leave as a son or daughter. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you. No, thanks. None of us are.